Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. be in Exodus chapter 3, as we cultivate deeply rooted missionaries that will be called righteous oaks, church, we must be a tree set on blaze by the presence of God, yet not burned up. A tree that glows and displays God's glory, God's presence, and his word. In the next two chapters of Exodus that we're going to take some time to walk through, God is. I would just write that at the top of chapter three there. If you have space, just write God is. He is not a concept that we can shape as we want to or as we choose, but he is reality. Ultimate reality, ultimate truth. And Moses is invited into God's presence to discover just who and what God is. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, the struggle is real. It seemed as if for the Israelites there was no hope of relief. Forty years has passed between chapters two and, well, yeah, between when uh, uh, Moses flows to Midian runs away, and when we hear chapter three. Forty years have passed. So it's been another 40 years of captivity, another 40 years of slavery. The heavy burden of Pharaoh has only grown more intense. Perhaps the Israelites were like what I read this week in one of the characters of a C.S. Lewis novel called That Hideous Strength. When faced with a terrible enemy, and it seemed like all else was lost, He said, no power that is merely earthly will serve against the hideous strength. To which one of his friends replied, then let us all to prayers. And that's exactly where Israel was. They'd cried out to the Lord. And as we left off last week, we know that God knew of their situation. And he continued to hear that call. And now to call Moses out of Midian to go back to Egypt and free his people from captivity. Let's pray. Almighty God, your presence was with Moses that day in the bush. And Father, I ask that humbly as we have your word open before us that you would speak to us as we are drawn in by your presence. Father, that you would awaken our hearts to this burning desire to meet with you, that our lives through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the presence of the Holy Spirit would cause us to burn with passion until your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at the fire in the bush. The fire in the bush. God answered the prayers of the Israelites. He answered that prayer in a faraway location, far away from Egypt, far away from where they were crying out to him. And we 
are met with this fact in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. You should get to know that mountain. It's going to show up again. Oh, someplace like Exodus 20, where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. It became known as the mountain of God from this point forward. It's not so much about the location. Where is it? There's been lots of folks try to find it, try to narrow down which mountain was the one Moses was on. But it's the fact that there on that place, this special encounter happened. God's presence was there. And it became known as the mountain of God. Look at verse 2. And an angel, and the angel of the Lord, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. That day most likely had started like any other day in the wilderness for Moses. He was doing what he was supposed to do out in the wilderness, tending the sheep of his father-in-law. He's watching over them like any good shepherd would do, not not texting or paying attention to Facebook, right? They didn't have those things. He's watching the sheep, going about the daily routine of making sure they've got plenty to eat, plenty of water, just like he'd done the last 40 years in Midian. And you never know at what point through the regular routine of life that God will change your life with some kind of special encounter. You never know when someone else's life might be changed forever by an encounter with God because God is always at work around us. This God that encounters Moses, he is not the God of chance. What we find in Exodus 3 and Exodus 4 is not a moment of chance. It's not a chance encounter. It's not that Moses by chance was walking through there and saw this bush on fire, but it is a pointed time that God decided to intervene for his people and call Moses. In his providence, he decided to call Moses on the far side of the desert, far away from the Israelites. It is most important to see this, that God brought Moses to himself. God drew Moses in. He called to Moses. Moses didn't stumble upon this moment. Okay? So don't go this morning thinking, wow, that was lucky that day, or I'm lucky to have been here today, or whatever. God has you here for a purpose. He has you a part of this church for a reason, for a purpose. God is not a God of chance. He is a God of purpose. And when Moses looks over to his right or his left, whichever direction he saw, he sees that this bush is on fire. What we need to understand about this fire in the bush is that it is a holy fire. It's not just a random fire. It is a different fire because God is in it. It is a holy fire. And he says this, behold, the bush is burning and yet it is not consumed. That means it's a different kind of fire. Because every other kind of fire I know that is natural to us consumes everything it touches. But this bush was not consumed that way. Though it was burning, it was not burnt. And it remained on fire without being reduced to embers and ash. It was a bush. We could talk about that bush all day long. You know, artists have tried to render what the bush would have looked like, what the fire would have looked like. Does it look different because it's not like our fire? I mean, well, some have tried to explain this away. Well, Moses caught the sunlight at the right time of day because, you know, here, either to our east or to our west, sometimes it looks like the sky is on fire if the sun's setting just right and the clouds are just right. 
Well, the sun hit the bush in just the right way and the, the leaves must have been red and orange. Maybe it was that kind of fall season and it just looked like the bush was on fire. No, the word says fire. It was on fire. But why do we get so captured by the bush and the fire? Was it a great bush? No, because it's a great fire by an even greater God. It is a holy moment. Friend, no living thing can withstand fire. No living thing can withstand raw fire, yet the tree is not consumed, the tree is not burned. This is what it is to be in the presence of God. He burns up that sin in our life, for no sin can withstand the holy fire in the presence of God. By now, Moses does what any of us would have done. Like that little bug that is attracted to the blue light of the bug zapper. He sees it. He's drawn in. He's going in. Ooh, pretty light, pretty light. But before he gets zapped by the fire, God says, stop. Don't come any further. Don't come any closer. Moses wants to investigate what he's seeing. He's never seen anything like this. Is it a mirage? Is it the sunlight dancing off the leaves through the background of orange and red? It, what, what is this? He's got to be curious. It's a physical miracle that's happening, but it's communicating a spiritual truth, and it's a supernatural moment. And here is that truth that even before God speaks to Moses, he is showing Moses who he was and who he is. It is revealed that in that fire, the very being of God is. Moses will later say in Deuteronomy, and it's captured on in other places in scripture, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. And it's a miraculous moment because God is showing his control over his creation, which will be vitally important when Moses goes back to Egypt and the 10 plagues happen. It'll be vitally important that every time God calls Moses to use the staff and to deliver the people, it's going to be some kind of supernatural event over nature. And in this moment, this is just the beginning. It's pointing to God's eternity. It's, it's pointing to God's omnipotence, his self-sufficiency. He never once says to Moses, hey, Moses, I know I told you not to come any closer here, but could you come stoke this fire for me? Because it's starting to die out a little bit so I can keep burning. Never once does he say, Moses, come stoke the fire so that I keep going. But everything in this burning bush speaks that God is above us. He is over us. He is with us. He is the cause of the universe, and everything in the universe exists because of him and depends upon him. And the fire is the appropriate description here. In other places in scripture, it is used of God's presence. In the Exodus, he's going to be a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. In the Acts, the Holy, in the, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, how does Luke describe it? Flames of fire, tongues of fire above each of the disciples. Moses is going to describe God as a consuming fire. Friends, what we're hearing from this is, hey, exactly what you tell your kids, don't play with the fire. When God makes an appearance, you don't play with the fire because it is a holy moment. And in verse 2, this messenger appears. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in that flame. 
of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet not consumed. The messenger, though, doesn't speak for God. He speaks as God in verse four. It's what we call a theophany and a God appearance in the Old Testament, a a visible manifestation of the invisible God. Now, if we take that too far, we'll say our God must be a flame of fire. So anytime we see fire, we would fall down and worship it. That's, That's not what he's saying. It's a visible manifestation of his presence. And the messenger speaks as God. This kind of encounter is not repeated in scripture. There is no other burning bush in scripture. It's this one one moment. And for this few moments, this bush is transformed into the temple of the living God, his presence on earth. God's presence was in that bush. But what also is important is that now Moses is in the presence of God and God invites him in. And God had to give Moses this startling, this immediate, vivid, personal experience of himself. And in doing so, he now calls Moses by name. It's a personal summons by God. Moses, Moses. When God repeats a name like that, it's, it's, a, it's a way of endearment. Moses would know that that voice that's calling to him is, a, is a, a voice that loves him, a voice that is concerned about him. And so Moses appropriately replied, here I am, Lord, or here I am, at the end of verse four. When he turned and saw, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. When God calls us, that is the only appropriate response. And it is always, yes, Lord, here I am. And then God replies, don't come near. Why? Because this is holy ground. Holy ground. The fact that Moses is in God's presence explains why God said, stand back. That's a pretty common experience if you're ever around a campfire or like the bonfire, I remember last uh, fall, the homecoming bonfire out on the beach and a great big structure of wood, not anything like the great Aggie bonfire, but close. And <laughs> it, it happens every time, every time. They light the thing on fire. We're all close. Woo! And then all of a sudden we're having a fire in the middle of no- October, November, when it's still 100 degrees in South Texas because, you know, oh, it's getting colder. It turned 95 today. Cold front came through. But what do, what do people do? Start moving back. Woo, turn away. Because why? Because it's hot, right? That we're, we're intimidated by the presence. You don't want to stand close. And God says the same thing to Moses. Stand back. And God is telling Moses, don't come near. Stand back. Don't get any closer. But why? Friend, what we see here that God is marking this gap that exists between him and us. You can't come any closer, Moses. And then he says, take off your sandals. Take the sandals off your feet. Well, okay, I will too. I wore my nice socks today, so they don't smell. They're clean. I did, my wife did laundry uh, uh, Friday, and so we're good. But he says, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. That holy ground marks the gap between a holy God and sinful man. And when God tells Moses he's on that holy ground, it's the first time in Scripture, Genesis to Exodus, that that word is used with reference to God. Now, God makes the Sabbath day holy, but that's not in reference to God. That's in reference to him making the Sabbath day set apart. But here, holy is used in reference to God. 
God has revealed his holiness to Moses. God has revealed to Moses his holiness in a way that has not been revealed before. There is this gap. Perhaps Moses had this in mind in Exodus 15 when he writes, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? I wonder if he had this burning fire in the bush moment in his mind. Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. Friends, holiness here means separation. We need to get that down. Holiness means separation. Robert Mounts defines it this way. He said, it is the essential nature of that which belongs to the sphere of the sacred and is distinct from the common or profane. Here's how God declares it in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. He says to the Israelites, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. There has to be this dividing line. There must be this difference. Otherwise, any of us would qualify as God. We would see somebody out there living their best life now and think, whoo, now that's a holy man. I, he, must be a, he must be one like the gods. That happens to Paul and some of the apostles later on as they go out preaching the gospel and they quickly say, no, 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 no. Time out, it's not us. His name's Jesus. And if we don't have this dividing line, we could claim ourselves to be God. So there has to be this dividing line of holiness, that God is separate from humanity. Why? Because of our sinfulness. We are commanded to be holy because he is holy. That's what we find in, first, in Peter writing to us. But we cannot, outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, be holy, ethically, morally, and in every way. God is holy and we are not. He is set apart from everything he has made. This moment helps us understand that. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 9, God says, For I am God and not a man, the holy one in your midst. And friends, it would help us when we come to worship, when we come to prayer, when we go to open our Bible, to remember that as we come into God's presence by the invitation of Jesus Christ and through him only, that we are coming into the presence of not our friend, although we are friends with him through Jesus, but not just our friend, but we are coming into the presence of the holy God. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord. That's Hannah, by the way, praying for her, her son-to-be. There, like, like, uh, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Friends, the gap is a reality. Don't come any closer is meant to display that kind of separation. God emphasizing that gap for Moses between himself and humanity. Why? Because he's about to go back to Egypt, and he is going to have to show Pharaoh God is going to use Moses to show Pharaoh that there is a gap between Pharaoh and God, that there is a gap between the God of Israel and Egypt. I totally believe that if, if Moses had taken one more step closer after God said, stop where you are, don't come any closer, he would have been in serious trouble, maybe even his life. God was too holy for Moses in this moment, and he's too holy for his shoes. The taking off of the shoes is a custom when entering a house, especially like that's what we had to learn in Hawaii, it was weird because my feet weren't always clean. But you always kick off your shoes before you go in someone's house. 
So avoid dirtying the house up, bringing in something unclean or something that would dishonor the family. That's the issue with our sin. Habakkuk says of God that his eyes are, are, are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. We cannot look upon God. His eyes are too pure. He is too pure for our eyes, and he is too pure to look upon ours. Like, that's the problem. We are made to be in the garden like Adam and Eve, to be in that garden relationship with him, but we have fallen into sin, and in our sinful state, it is not safe for us to come into the presence of God. How can we stand in his presence and survive? Because there is a day that is coming when we will stand before his judgment seat, and when that day comes, unless we are holy, we will be destroyed. So what do we do about that? Well, unfortunately, people deal with that truth and that reality in several different ways. One, we like to exaggerate our own holiness. False religions will do this. They'll practice this. You follow their guidelines, and you're in. But the guideline is made up, or it might mirror something in Scripture. We think we're basically good enough if we obey the right rules and observe the right rituals then we must be good enough for whatever God that religion is calling us to. And the religion of self, if we're our own God, if we're making up our own rules, then I'm good enough to get in. And if there is a God out there, he's gonna, you know, he's gonna let me in because I lived according to my own truth. And then there's the other guy that exaggerates his own, his own holiness to a point that he never takes any responsibility for himself. He's gonna lay blame at everyone else and not take responsibility for his own sin and his own actions. Romans chapter three, verse 10 says, as it is written, there are none who are righteous, no, not one. So the other side of that is that we minimize God's holiness. We lower his standards. It's exactly what the serpent did to Adam and Eve in the garden. You will not surely die, he said. For God knows that when you eat, uh, and you, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. However, God cannot be any less holy than he is. I like the way Kent Hughes said that once. He said he would have to un-God himself to do so. He's not going to do that. I've been reading a lot of Tozer lately as we talk about God's presence and working through our Wednesday night prayer time. And one of, his, one of his books, I don't know, I've got three of them I'm reading through right now, so I can't tell you which one because I didn't quote it, but I put it in quotes and I know it's from him. So here it is. He says this. Instead of minimizing God's holiness, he said, I want God to be what God is. The impeccably holy, unapproachable, holy thing. The all holy one. I want him to be and remain the holy I want his heaven to be holy and his throne to be holy. I don't want him to change or modify his requirements. Even if it shuts me out, I want something holy left in the universe. The only way we can be in his presence is to be holy. And the only way that that will happen is to trust in the way, the truth, and the life whose name is Jesus Christ. And outside of that relationship with Jesus, there is no way you will ever approach the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, that all happens because Jesus died on the cross to take away our sin and to pay the punishment and the price for it. That's why he came. You see, Jesus is the true and better Moses. He's the true and better Adam. He is the better one, Jesus the holy. He died on the cross paying for all of our unholiness. And this is what Colossians says from uh, the Apostle Paul. You were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the grace that God has shown through the cross. It enables us to approach the Holy One. It enables us to come to the throne of grace, not as Moses did, hiding his face and barefoot, but by faith, trusting solely and purely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then we're in the presence of the God who is. God introduces himself to Moses, and he says in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Let me quickly say this, that God did not introduce himself as, well, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's present tense. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a huge difference. I'm gonna take the time to explain the big difference, but there's a huge difference. This is one of the, this God of the burning bush, he's not an unknown God. The people of Israel will know who he is. Moses should know who he is. He was the God who acted on behalf of these earlier people. He's the God of that covenant, the God that promised to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as the stars of the sky. So he doesn't say, I was, but he, he still is God. God's people never really die either because we are a part of that eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Hear what Jesus says in Mark chapter 12 to the Pharisees. He says, and as for the dead being raised, he's actually talking to the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, because Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. He says, have you not read in the books of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He is the God who is, and he still is today. Finally, he is the God who saves. At the end of chapter 24, I ask you to underline these four verbs in verse 24. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. Those four verbs point to God taking action. Now, in chapter 3, verses 7, 8, and 9, guess what we hear the Lord saying to Moses? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have surely seen, verse 7, the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, the Jebusites. 
And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. It is exactly what God tells Moses. I have seen, I have heard, I have come down to deliver them, I have seen them. He is the God who saves. God knows your situation. He knows exactly what his people are going through. He knows what you're walking through in this day and what you've been walking through. And he knows where he's got you going if you'll follow him in obedience. But God acted to bring salvation in this moment to humanity. Not in the fullest extent yet, but that day is coming when Jesus would come. And in the fullest extent, give his life upon the cross. This relationship between God and Israel is so very special. The holy and glorious God has a personal relationship and intimate knowledge of each one of his people. Isaiah 43 verse 1 says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Every Christian is a Christian by God's calling, by God's saving. The way God would rescue Israel from Egypt is the way that God rescues people today. It's not just an old story, friends, but it is reality. This God of the burning bush is the same God we sing to and serve today. He saves you by calling and drawing you to himself, and you come in and through Jesus Christ. When we worship him, we are on holy ground. When we come to him in prayer, we are on holy ground. When we are praising the God then of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our God is the God who saves because he came down. His name, I've said it, but his name is Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Do you know him? And have you met him? Have you met Jesus? Because rather than hiding your face from God, we are hidden in Jesus. And just like Hebrews tells us, we can enter through Jesus into the presence of God. And there is no better place to be than in the presence of God. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.com.